Hello, and welcome to Avatar the Podcast. We are your hosts, Acorn Bandit, and is that Booster Greg? Is it? Who let him back in here? I swear, every every episode, this guy just keeps I, on showing up. I thought we locked the door. I, I what is happening? We might have not. Or you know <laughs> what? Was were the windows locked? You always got to check the windows. Oh, and that doggy door. Yeah, Man. the doggy door. He's a he's a slippery one. Um, <laughs> good news, I am recovering from Pentapox, so my voice might sound a little better to everyone. Great. Yes. So we'll we'll see how this episode goes, but I'm very excited. I feel like I'm getting my energy back and everything. So I felt so bad because the Cave of Two Lovers I was so looking forward to, and I just sounded like this. I feel like the whole episode. <laughs> so it was a shame, but you know what? We're getting over it. It's good. Good. Good thing. Yeah. Well, today we are going to be diving into Return to Omashu, <laughs> which pretty much is where we left off with our last episode. Our heroes went over the hill and Sokka was giving us the grand reveal saying, welcome to, oh, oh, no. Yeah, yeah. There was like the, oh, my Mushu. No, it's not Mushu. Oh, Mushu. And like, like from Troll 2. Remember that movie? Trolls 2. I like don't think I ever watched it. Well, you at least know the meme, I hope, where it's like the worst, the bees everywhere and the guy's just like, oh, my God. And it's like the worst acting ever, period. It's I don't know if I've ever seen this. What? Is this a meme I've missed? Who are you? The Rob Logan? It must be the <laughs> Rob Logan who needs instruction on what all and any memes are. <laughs> we love you, Rob. Love you, Rob. But yes, we are covering book two, Return to Omashu, or as we like to call it, The Night of the Living Pentapox. All right, let's dive right into the episode. Yes. This episode was written by Elizabeth Welch Ehas and directed by Ethan Spaulding. And yes, that is the same Ehas that we have been talking about. Aaron Ehas, lead writer, is Elizabeth's husband. That's kind of awkward, I think, because the last episode we were like, is that his sister? Yeah, are they related? (laughs) Yeah, they're definitely married. They're a, a writing duo. And this is her first episode that she's written for Avatar and I believe will continue to write a few episodes. So we have that to look forward to. Nice. This is also Ethan Spaulding's directing debut for Avatar, because before Avatar, he worked on The Simpsons. Oh, that's really cool. But yes, like I mentioned before, we find our heroes where we left them, staring at the conquered city of Omashu. A Fire Nation banner hangs from its walls, and great metal drawbridges span the chasm that surrounds the city from all sides. Omashu the Untouchable has fallen into Fire Nation hands. The great city of Ba Sing Se is the last Earth Kingdom stronghold left. Oh no. Dun dun dun. Bum bum bum. Katara tells them they should move on, but Aang insists on going into the city to find Bumi. When Katara tells him they can find other teachers to teach him earthbending, he says this isn't about finding a teacher, it's about finding his friend. Using a sewer system, they sneak into the city and find themselves in the middle of a street. That wasn't as bad as I thought, says Katara, who is dry and clean after using water bending to bend the sewage around her. Aang, having used air bending in a similar way, stands untouched beside her. Sokka, though, emerges from the manhole covered in a thick green slime <laughs> as spooky music plays in the background. <laughs> that is the spooky music that we need for yeah. our night of the Pentapox. Yes, yes, we'll try to get that. <laughs> Katara cleans him off with water bended from a barrel, and Aang blasts him dry with a gust of wind. It's then that Sokka realizes he's brought something else from the sewer with him, and they're stuck to his face. He panics when he can't pull them off, and Aang explains the five-legged mini octopus creature is called a purple pentapus. He helps Sokka remove them from his face by petting the tops of their heads, and their suction cups leave behind small red dots on Sokka's skin. They're so cute, by the way. I never thought adorable. I would think anything octopus related I would find adorable, but they're just like pink and they're cute. And then they make this like little smiley, like eye, 
like fa- not yeah. face, but their eyes smile when like you take them off and they're just so cute and adorable. Also, real quick before we go to the next point, I do want to point out that again, Katara water bends and Sokka gets wet. And Sokka gets wet. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I caught that. <laughs> we can't break with tradition. Nope. I have a note about Penta, the name Pentapus, mm-hmm. because Penta is a Greek numerical prefix for five. And pus is derived from the Greek pus, or P, however you say this, P-O-U-S, which means leg. So the name thus refers to the five limbs of the animal, much like how the octopus's name comes from having its eight limbs. I was going to say, yeah, just like an octopus. Just like an octopus. Yeah. Octa. Another small detail is when we see them sneak into the city, they're wearing the same cloaks that they were wearing in the Fire Nation Festival in the episode The Deserter. Yeah, I noticed that too. I'm, I'm happy they were using it, not just like letting it go to waste there. Yeah. So it must have been packed up in their bedrolls or something on Abba, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's what I would imagine. At that moment, a group of guards come down the street and demand to know what the group is doing out past curfew. Katara lets the guards know they were just going home and they turn to leave. But one of the guards stops Sokka when he sees the red dots on his skin. Katara quickly comes up with a disease called Pentapox and claims it's highly contagious and deadly. Sokka plays along with a bunch of moaning and coughing and the guards quickly leave. I love that. And this we'll see this throughout the episode. Whenever anyone mentions Pentapox, they all go, I think I've heard of that. <laughs> like they're yes, just like, yeah, so that good. sounds vaguely familiar. I'm pretty sure I heard of that. I think my cousin got that <laughs> disease. It's so stupid. I love it. <laughs> it's it's like it's an ongoing bit that is just it makes it so makes the episode that much better. Yeah. The scene switches to onboard Azula's ship where she is sitting on a raised dais between her two advisors, Lo and Lee. Her advisors tell her that when tracking her brother and uncle, traveling with the royal procession may no longer be an option if she wishes to keep the element of surprise. Azula agrees with them and remarks that she will need a small elite team instead, which means it's time to visit some old friends. It's a little tough to know what the royal procession is in this scene because it's literally just Azula, Lo, and Lee on the, the deck of the ship. But yeah. I did some research and the royal procession is also known as the Imperial Firebenders. And they were a unit of elite firebenders who served as personal and ceremonial guards for the Fire Nation royal family. And they also worked in close association with the Fire Lord's military maneuvers. And once I saw the picture, these are the firebenders who are kind of like the imposing muscle. They're in full head to toe armor with Mm. like these uh, red spikes on the top of their helmets. And if you watch closely in this episode, you'll see a few of them standing behind Azula at different points. So I guess they're just like bodyguards. Interesting. It kind of reminds me based off of that description of in... Star Wars. Oh, yeah. What was the one I didn't like? Uh, I don't know. The one that Ryan Johnson directed. That one. The <laughs> uh, the Last Jedi. In Star Wars, The Last Jedi, where you had all those like those force guardians or whatever that are just all yeah. in red. That's what it, that reminds me of. Yes. Yeah. I will never forget a video that I watched on YouTube about one of the a choreographer in the industry watching that scene and just dying inside because he's like, what are they doing? They're just standing there waiting for their turn. This is awful. (laughs) Yeah, that's not my favorite Star Wars movie. I just I wish I could forget about it. And I almost did. I forgot the name at least. And then I remembered and it all came flooding back to me. Oh, well, pack it away for a few more years and you'll be fine. It'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Another small detail is in the original concepts, Azula was going to have a team of ninjas support her in her mission, but the idea of sidekicks with individual skills seemed much more promising, and I am so glad they went that direction because this dynamic trio of May, Tai Lee, and Azula is just gold. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember any of this. Like when I when I think about my rewatch, I don't remember my I don't remember Tai Lee. I don't remember. I remember Azula, obviously, but I don't remember like what happens afterwards. So just seeing this episode, I thought it was like really a really good dynamic and that like yeah. they're almost on equal footing, so to speak, just with different skills. And I appreciate that yes. more than just having like, I don't know, the Wuhan archers who just are there for an episode, it seems like, and then they're gone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think they did a really good job making the all three girls very proficient at their very specialized skill 
So May with her daggers and knives, Azula mm. with her firebending, and Ty Lee with her chi blocking. Yeah. It's cool too because they're obviously very good friends, but there's also this almost deference to Azula because she's the team leader and she's also a princess. Yeah. And so there's a lot of respect and love, but there's also like a touch of fear mm-hmm. and a lot of deference <laughs> to Azula. Yeah. I agree, yeah. Back in the city, Aang, Katara, and Sokka decide that wherever Bumi is being held prisoner must be made entirely of metal and sneak off in search of such a place. Just below them, the wife of the governor and her daughter, May, are enjoying an evening stroll with Fire Nation guards. May complains about how boring life is in Omashu because nothing ever happens. The group is unaware of the two members of the city's resistance above them, where they are about to release large boulders down a delivery chute. The boulders are released, and Aang sees them plummeting towards the group below and airbends the boulders out of the way. However, when the governor's wife sees Aang, she assumes he must be part of the resistance and calls the guards after him. So really quickly, three casting points right now. You know what? I'll just go no for it. I'll, I'll do the whole family just in one swoop just so we can get okay. that done. So Ukano, who plays May's father, is, is voiced by Paul Eiding who is Perceptor in the Transformers, as well as, if you remember the cartoon, The Toxic Crusaders, you might be a 90s kid. Uh, He played a character named Nozone. If you are a fan of Ben 10, he played Max Tennyson, who was Ben 10's grandfather. Oh, nice. Also Pa Kent in Superman versus the Elite and Death and Return of Superman. Now, that is the second person to be in um, Avatar, The Last Airbender, that has been in that specific Superman versus the Elite movie. Last oh, episode, we had um, the guy who voiced Manchester Black showing up. So okay. th- they got kind of got that going on. Uh, Michi, who is May's mother, is voiced by Gray Delisle, who is Azula. <gasps> yeah. Yep. What? And if you like that, <laughs> you're going to like who voices Tom Tom because it's no. none, none other than Tara Strong. No who, way. Yeah. So did that, basically all of Rugrats, right? Literally. So Tara Strong has done Bubbles from Powerpuff Girls, Raven from Teen Titans and Teen Titans Go. Um, if you remember the cartoon Extreme Ghostbusters, I do. She was the the goth girl named Kylie Griffin, uh, okay. who was amazing. She was Batgirl from Batman the Animated Series, Dill Pickles from Rugrats, Timmy Turner from Fairly Odd Parents, and Harley Quinn from the Arkham series. And um, has done like more and more and more voices. She was also in Ben 10 as Ben 10, the original Ben 10. Run. Oh, my gosh. So yeah, is, Tara is one of the names. Yeah. I'm not into voice actors, but I know who Tara Strong is because oh, she is like, yeah. she's a legend. She's done everything. And she's like yep. a freaking ventriloquist with what she can do with her voice. It's oh, just yeah. anything. She can do it. Yeah, she's a, she's absolutely amazing. But that is the whole the whole. Uh, oh, sorry. And then May. I almost forgot May. So the whole family, right? And then May is Cricket Lee, who has honestly done nothing major besides this. Okay. I found she did some voices for Celebrity Deathmatch, Saints Row 2, and Red Faction 2. But that was about it. Okay, cool. So that, Well, that's that, fine, because I'll just know her as May forever. Yeah, yeah. And that's pretty much what I feel like most people will know her as. I don't think anyone's going like, oh, yeah, Cricket Lee from Celebrity Deathmatch. It's like, no. <laughs> right. Yeah, so... Awesome. Wow. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. May leaps into action with the guards and unleashes a volley of deadly daggers that Katara must block with walls of ice. May continues to pursue them until they are pulled underground by earthbenders. She sighs loudly and retreats in disappointment. The excitement over. <laughs> Finally, something happened. Yeah, right. Meanwhile, Azula has begun the search for her small elite team. The scene changes to circus grounds where a girl named Tai Lee is training. Azula approaches her and through conversation reveals that Tai Lee is the daughter of a nobleman. Azula wonders aloud why someone like Tai Lee, who went to the Royal Fire Academy for Girls like Azula did, has joined the circus. But before we can get an answer from Tai Lee, Azula continues on to explain her proposition. Azula informs Tai Lee that she wants her help in tracking down her fuddy-duddy uncle, seemingly neglecting to mention Zuko on purpose. Hmm. Tylee declines her offer, saying she is happy with her life at the circus and that her aura has never been pinker. Azula seems to accept this decision, but goes on to inform her that she is staying to watch her show, which makes Tylee visibly nervous. 
Mm-hmm. Real quick, Ty Lee is voiced by Olivia Hack, uh, who has played Rhonda. I think it's Rhonda. Rhonda Wellington Lloyd from Hey Arnold. So that's that's something. Oh, that you sounds might familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it seems like this character appeared in the movie first and then became a reoccurring character afterwards. That's why. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, also played Tama from Gilmore Girls and Whoa. was Cat Katuni uh, from Star Wars, The Clone Wars. There's Star Wars again. There it is. I feel like we're not going to see uh, Dave Filoni directing anymore. I just have that feeling because I didn't match up the timelines exactly right now, but I feel like he's directing Clone Wars at the moment. I can confirm that. Yes, yeah. I did run across that little piece of uh, trivia that he left the Avatar project after the first book to go yeah. on to Clone Wars. Yep. Yeah, makes sense. So what's interesting in my research on Ty Lee is that this might be spoilers for a little bit later, but she has six identical sisters. Yeah. Which is super interesting. Um, the other thing that's kind of funny is that she went to the circus to like differentiate herself from her sisters. And if you know where she ends up later, that's actually hilarious that she left the circus to not be an identical sister. And then she ends up doing, I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it yet. Yeah, don't spoil it. Yeah, but she ends up doing something which essentially negates that, Yeah, (laughs) which I thought was pretty hilarious. It's okay. She just needed to go find herself, be her own person. I mean, I get that. I actually had a younger sister who looked very much like me when we were younger. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I first dyed my hair was to differentiate myself because I was sick of my neighbors calling me my sister's name when they oh, saw no. me down the street. So I get it. I yeah. mean, jo- leaving your country and joining the circus is like maybe a little extreme. But yeah. for someone like Ty Lee, that's like right up her alley. Also, really quickly, too, like Ty Lee and I guess by association, her and her sisters, um, are also some of the few natives of the Fire Nation that do not have black hair and golden eyes. Yes, I've noticed that. Which I, I want to make a point later about this, uh, but it okay. makes me think. So I've got to remember where that point was. But once we get to it, I'll jump in and I'll, I'll tell you exactly what my train of thought is. All right, perfect. Yeah. I also found out that the Fire Nation Circus... Um, it reminded me a lot of the Fire Nation Festival and how we learned in The mm. Deserter that it's a traveling festival that brings a little bit of the Fire Nation culture to expats who are in the Earth Kingdom. So in a similar way, the Fire Nation Circus was a group of traveling performers that gave demonstrations in various Fire Nation colonies and the Fire Nation. The circus entertained Fire Nation and Earth Kingdom families alike by hosting acts from rope walkers, acrobats, and plate jugglers. It also featured a large collection of rare and exotic animals, including a lion vulture and, at one point, a wind buffalo, which hmm. may or may not be a nod to something that we'll see in the future. Ooh, I hope so. Below the city, Aang speaks to the leader of the Resistance, Young, who was captain of Amashu's army and was with Bumi the day the Fire Nation invaded. Young informs Aang that before the fighting even began, King Bumi surrendered the city. Young claims that fighting the Fire Nation is the only path to freedom, and freedom is worth dying for. Aang tells them now is the time to retreat so they can live to fight another day. The rest of the resistance agrees with Aang, much to Young's disappointment. But they need a plan in order to leave the city safely. Enter Sokka, the idea guy. Hey. <laughs> He hatches a plan using the pentapi from the sewers to, quote-unquote, infect the citizens with pentapox, mm-hmm. using their suction cup marks to make the citizens appear sick. When Aang goes off in search of Bumi, the large group of citizens shuffle their way to the front of the city, moaning like the gravely ill. I learned in an early version of the script, Sokka was actually going to give tips on how to act sick here, And his tips were going to include how to hunch over and properly moan in pain. And the scene was cut down for time. But I think what they ended up doing was including the little bit where the old man. Yes. uh, Yeah. I love that guy. The scene where Sokka gives them instructions came right before the old man, like, put it all together and did Mm -hmm. uh, an example of it. That must have been where they cut it out. Yeah, it has to. It it would. It reads perfectly either way. And I actually like that they cut it out because A, not only does it like streamline that whole thing, but B, mm-hmm. it's just like it's hilarious where all these other people are like, what is he talking about? And then this old man who's just yeah. obviously been faking being in pain for a while because he's probably, I don't know, 
um, begging for trying coin to get out or of work like or that, something. trying to get out of yeah. work or whatever. And he's just like, thanks, practice. He reminds me a lot. Remember the Hunchback in Notre Dame, the Disney movie? Yeah. Remember the old man in the cage? Yes. He's always like, I'm free, I'm free. And then he trips and he gets caught in something else. He's like, dang it. That guy, yeah. <laughs> the old guy, for whatever reason, reminds me of that. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I want to say it's the voice or the delivery. There's maybe. something very similar about them. Yeah. 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 Or maybe it's even just the fact that he's an old man that's hunched over and super thin and frail looking. Yes. And yeah, making something thin, thin and frail sounds. Yeah. <laughs> <Fair>. <laughs> also, in this section of the episode, we see an example of Fire Nation influence in the cities it inhabits. So there's a very large Fire Nation style building uh, in the center of the city where the governor and his family live. And the scene with the citizens cuts to his balcony where he's looking out on the city. And we can see a lot of other Fire Nation buildings. And it reminds me of what we were seeing in The Deserter, where we first learned also about fireflakes, because yeah. in this scene, May is offering fireflakes to her dad. Yeah. But we were talking about how it looks like the Fire Nation invaded and then built their own structures in the middle of all of this uh, Earth Kingdom architecture. Mm. And we're seeing that again here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's actually very reminiscent from the pilot episode, too, where there was yeah. a scene uh, I know someone brought it up in one of the angry mails where we're talking about Zuko's pet messenger hawk or or whatever it was yep. in that same part as well. There's all these like rafters and, and scaffolding stuff, scaffolding. Thank you. Being built. And I think they just pretty much reused that whole vibe just for this episode, which I thought was yeah, nice. I think they did. Yeah. Yeah. We especially see it later in the episode when uh, Team Avatar is fighting Azula. But yes, right. I think they really did repurpose that uh, set design. Yeah. Another fun fact, we've talked about Ukano a little bit, who is the governor of this settlement and mm -hmm. also May's father. He's not a firebender, but he was the mastermind behind the invasion of Omashu. He was the first and only Fire Nation governor of what is to become New Ozai, appointed by Fire Lord Ozai himself, as we learn in this episode. Huh. Small little detail. He is said to not be a firebender, but he does make an appearance in one of the Avatar video games where I think he's a boss of some kind and he mm -hmm. can firebend in that video game. But I personally am not going to take that as canon because That's oftentimes video games, yeah, yeah. video games yeah, yeah. Are, are not usually. Yeah. Unless it's otherwise stated, it's not canon. Yeah. Yeah. So little detail, but it's cool to see how there are definitely still Fire Nation citizens who play a part in all of this, like Lo and Lee, for instance. They are not firebenders either, but they right. are the firebending advisors and political advisors to Azula. And same thing here, you know, May doesn't firebend right. and her father doesn't firebend, but they still have big roles to play. Isn't it interesting that Ozai tends to keep those closest to him that cannot firebend? Or the, those that hold higher court in his regard cannot firebend. Zhao is going to be the exception. Yeah. But he has these two women, these two twin older women, teaching his daughter how to be a perfect, quote unquote, perfect firebender. And they cannot firebend themselves. And then he takes over the city of Omashu. And who does he give it to, essentially? A non-firebender. I feel like there's something going on there, but I can't quite put my finger on what that is. I think it's a promoting those who are who you view as being weaker than yourself. So that way they won't rebel as easily would be my guess. Yeah, they're, they're less of a threat because they are not. I feel like and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I feel mm -hmm. like Ozai is kind of a purist or or like a classist where he thinks that benders are superior oh, for to sure. other people people yeah but yeah he can almost appoint them and not worry because in his mind they're not as quote-unquote good as the rest of the fire nation citizens who can firebend or does he even have that kind of mentality of benders are superior to everyone else or it, or is it just a game of pie show to him as well and he just has his pieces and he wants to keep his better pieces or I don't know, but better, but he wants to keep those that are worth more or have more value closer. Yeah. I think we'll have to table this until yeah. we get into book three, because I, you know, it's been a little bit since I've gone through the show and this is actually the first time I've really dived so deep into each episode, but I feel mm. like we touch on this in a future episode or section of episodes where we kind of get into Ozai's head a little bit about what he believes. 
Okay. Yeah. I, I just found that very interesting. All of a sudden, as, as soon as you put that, I was like, huh, there's quite a few promotions going on here that are non-benders. Yeah. Interesting to me. So, it, yeah, I think you're right. It could point either direction where yeah. he appoints people he feels are not threatening or their abilities don't play a part at all. And they're just exceptional in their own way when it comes to strategy or politics and, and the like. Or maybe he knows they're going to do exactly as he'll say. Because or that. Or they're, they're very, very them. obedient. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably that. I mean, yeah, maybe. Chances are. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. As Aang searches the city for Boomy, he comes across Flopsy, who has been chained to a large wheel and put to work. Aang frees him by freezing and breaking the chain, and they run off in search of Boomy together. Flopsy. I love that they brought Flopsy back. I saw him. I was I like, oh, too. buddy, you're there. And poor, he was chained up. Poor guy. I know. Poor thing. He was oh, this man. big, he was basically used as like, um, what's that called? A beast of burden. Yeah. I think that's like the official term for animals who are used as like for manual labor. I guess I don't know what the term is, but yeah, like, yeah. you know, oxen who pull plows and that right. sort of thing, like beasts of burden. Yeah. 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 I, I wonder if that like, Thing that he was pushing actually did anything because i feel like if it did do something someone would notice if it stopped turning the second it happened yeah so i think it does do okay. something very important because when we think about it you particularly have mentioned many times how the city of mashu works off of earthbending right you have your delivery shoots everything in the city is done with earthbending but since the invasion the fire nation probably needs to re retrofit everything oh Yes. Because now the city is going to have to run on Fire Nation machines and firebending unless right. they can get earthbenders to work for them. But that's too dangerous. I'm, I imagine that they're locking down as much of the city as possible to keep yeah. people from revolting. Well, yeah, we've already seen in the episode Imprisoned that they can't get earthbenders to do what they want. So they just break them down until they're just soulless, essentially, and yes. have no morale. And that's how they deal with that. So, yeah. So they have to replace earthbending with their own machinery essentially. So that's probably, yeah. that's a good point what Flopsy was working on or so, was utilizing. Yeah. Who knows what the wheel is, but, um, or what it does, but I'm, I'm glad they left really quickly because I imagine, yeah, that wheel stops turning. Some soldier is going to come by and be like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, quick question. Do you think that the, because Aang uses frost breath twice yes. in this episode, is that the same one that Katara uses or is he using air bending to mimic that effect? If he, you, you, I would assume he can control the temperature of air. If he can control the direction of it, yeah, I think it's water bending related. Personally, okay. yeah, because we don't really see frost breath from him before he started learning water bending. And when you think about it, the reason why the air is getting cold is because the water droplets in the air are freezing. Fair, and so I, I guess that's the distinction between air bending, where you can push the air in different directions and water yeah. bending where you can like change the temperature and the the state of an element mm -hmm. how like water goes from steam to yeah, vapor to it's from liquid. vapor to, to liquid to solid yeah yeah i wonder if he could combine vapor with air bending then i'm thinking that's where Probably. it crosses over and i think yeah. the only time we would ever see that is with an avatar because they're able to bend multiple elements yeah it's very interesting as we go on through this book, uh, especially the next episode, where we start seeing like that elemental uh, divide kind of gray and soften a little bit. Yeah. Because right, like in book one, it's just like you can either bend fire, water, earth, or air. Unless you're the Avatar, you can do all of them. And we start seeing like, well, like now that we're kind of talking about it, like, you know, what if you turn water into a vapor, that's essentially an air element at that point. So like we're starting to really kind of see this, this, um, th how everything is connected, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And lava bending and, and lava bending. Yeah. And what we'll see later. Yes. <laughs> and what we'll see later with a couple characters. Yes. Yeah. All right. Some distance away, Momo is hungry and has left everyone in search of food. His stomach leads him to the governor's house, where he finds a bowl of bakui berries. As he's busy stuffing his face, May's little brother Tom-Tom Tom, becomes intrigued with Momo's tail and pulls on it. This causes Momo to attempt to escape, but Tom-Tom Tom follows him off the balcony and onto a delivery chute. 
The two tumble to the ground where the city's citizens are shuffling past, and Tom Tom follows them out the gates. I, I love this B plot, by the way. Me too. It doesn't really kind of need to be there or as in depth, but it's I love that they did. Yeah, so there's funny. a really old movie called Baby's Day Out that I yeah. watched when I was really young. Mm -hmm. And I think you can even find it on one of the streaming services. I saw it somewhere, but it's essentially that. It's just yeah. this baby getting out into the world and having like misadventures. Yeah, or also um, Animaniacs, Buttons and Mindy also has yeah. that kind of like vibe to it as well. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. At the circus, the ringmaster, Shizumu, addresses his audience, announcing that they have a guest of honor, the Fire Lord's daughter. After taking a seat beside hers, he tells her to inform him of any way in which he can make the show more to her liking. She accepts his offer with a knowing smirk. As Tai Lee performs a balancing act high in the air on a wire, Azula asks the ringmaster if he believes she will fall. When he confidently replies, of course not, Azula tells him to remove the net below Tai Lee to make the act more interesting. When the ringmaster tries to object, Azula masterfully plays along and agrees that, yes, yes, that has been done before. Never mind. Mm, uh, the voice of uh, Shizumu is also Robin Atkins Downs, who we had last episode. Uh, he was all he was the one who played Manchester Black in Superman vs. the Elite. So this is oh, two, great. two voice actors from um, that movie that are now in here. So, and a returning voice actor. Yes, and he returns. He does a, a, quite a few things. Just, I mean, we went over the last episode, I think it was, when the voices that he does. But he shows up uh, five or six times, if I'm reading it correctly, in the series. Wow. So, yeah. Azula plays along and then tells the ringmaster to set the net on fire instead. He reluctantly concedes and sets it ablaze. As the fire grows, Tai Lee becomes more and more nervous, and the ringmaster is also clearly worried for her safety, mm -hmm. but caught between his concern and obeying a member of the royal family. Azula's final order is for the ringmaster to release all of the city's dangerous animals inside the tent, and the scene ends with a cacophony of animal calls inside. What is kind of interesting with Azula and how she's always just getting what she wants is you have to imagine Zuko was the exact same way, except he's not like evil, right? Like Azula is, is just mean to be mean for her own entertainment, whereas Zuko is determined he has, he has a purpose. Uh, so I think when we see like in the I think it was last episode or two episodes back where Zuko is just like, I'm not meant for this life. I can't be a fugitive. Like he's just so used to being like, I want food and food appears. And that's not his fault. That's just his environment. And Iroh has been trying to teach him how to get out of that mentality where Iroh has also been in that mentality the whole time as well. Yes. So I, I thought this was like a nice little window into what life could have been like for Zuko. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point because they're definitely siblings, but I really do think Azula takes the self-importance to a really high manipulative oh, yeah, level. For sure. Because it is, I'm royal, I'm important, you should do what I want you to do, but that's where it ends for Zuko. It's, I'm royal, I deserve this. This is yeah. what my life is like. But for yeah. Azula, it's, I'm royal, I deserve this, and I'm going to say and do anything I need to in order to get you to do this for me. And th there is also the fact that Zuko's led a much more difficult life than Azula, yeah. for sure. I'm not, I'm not saying that they both are spoiled rotten by their father when Azula is clearly the most spoiled and Zuko has just had things provided to him. But you're, you're right, he never takes advantage of that, at least that we saw. Yeah. Where Azula does nothing but take advantage of her status. Yeah. And she has this like sadistic element to her, which I think is yeah. so well done in her character, where she almost just she's like a, a cat who likes playing with her food before she eats yep. it. It's like, let me just, you know, push it and poke it and mess with it for mm -hmm. my own pleasure. Yeah. Where Zuko is more utilitarian with like if we want to use the meal analogy where he'll eat it but he won't like savor it or he won't play with it or anything like that. He eats it because he needs the nourishment because it's going to make him catch the avatar. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. After successfully and safely escaping the city, Aang and Flopsy rejoin the resistance and the resistance leader, Young, informs the gang that they have one more person than they should. Tom Tom, the infant, who is still enamored with Momo and won't leave the lemur alone. Also, really quickly, this is a big one. Young is, the, is voiced by Fred Tattashore who has is like you'll know him as Hulk in basically 
every single modern animated Marvel movie. Oh, cool. Or not movie, sorry. Marvel cartoon. He was also, if you played Gears of War, that franchise, he's the voice of Baird, which I didn't know until I looked it up. He played Cannonbolt from Ben 10. He was also Beast in Wolverine and the X-Men. And Perry White, again, in Superman versus the Elite. That's the third. (laughs) I don't know why. That's the third time that we get a Superman versus the Elite casting in Rocksteady from the 2013 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series, as well as Slade, aka Deathstroke from Young Justice. Oh, wow. So lots of superhero shows. And you're right. That's like three Superman and like, what, five Ben 10? Yeah, it's crazy. So that's wow. Okay. Ben 10 isn't as surprising to me because I feel like that is just like this feels like Avatar has that Ben 10 feeling or vice versa, I should say, where they're they're meant as children's shows to begin with. And then they evolve into something more because we get character development and growth because they're treated like comic books is what they are. And they have like a a reverence and a respect for each and every character, even those that may or may not have earned it. Like the Cabbage Emergent, for example, there's definitely respect there because it keeps on showing up. But it has, I think that's what makes it that vibe. But it is super interesting about Superman versus the Elite. I think that's the last one, I think. But that was just really cool. Until we find another one. I know. I know. Well, at least in this, I'll say the last one in this episode, I think, because I think that's the la- end of my casting notes. Yeah. Well, I just think it's interesting that it's Clone Wars, Ben 10, mm-hmm. and also Jackie Chan. Jackie Those Chan are Adventures. The, yeah. But that, that has that same thing, too, where it started off very children's cartoon. And then the further it goes into the seasons, you you learn more about Chinese culture through the talismans. And then like the characters start to grow and develop and like Toru, who was a bad guy in the first season, becomes a good guy in the second season. There's growth yeah. and, and evolution, which is something that I mean, I I don't watch a lot of animated series that are more current now because I'm just stuck in all of these old ones that I love. But I feel like I haven't seen that as much as that when I did in the early 2000s. Yeah, no, great point. Back in Omashu, the governor and his family have become aware that Tom Tom is missing, and they believe the resistance is behind the kidnapping. Everything is so clever, so tricky, just like their King Boomy, the governor says to himself. Backstage at the circus, Azula congratulates Tai Lee on the show with a bouquet of black flowers and wonders aloud how she will be able to top herself the next day. Tai Lee tells her that the universe has given her strong hints that it's time for a career change and that she would like to join Azula on her mission. Azula smiles in satisfaction. You know, this makes me wonder if Tai Lee really has no idea that Azula was behind those weird things that happened during her performance, like the net catching on fire and the animals getting set loose. Like, did no one at the circus tell her Azula was behind it all or or made these requests? Or... Is she fully aware and is using the whole universe is giving her signs thing to smoothly agree to go along with Azula? Not knowing much about Ty Lee, I want to say it's the latter, but yeah, that's just like my gut, right? Is like it could it could be completely within her character to be like, yeah, no, she's just oblivious all the time and just like she's very skilled in what she does, but you know, she's. Uh, book smart, but not street smart, so to speak, where Azula and May seem to be the opposite of that. Yeah, I'm leaning towards the latter as well, yeah. because I think and we're going to see more of Tylee in the future through the rest of the books. But she does have this element of, you know, it's all good. I'll just go with the flow. I am a very like laid back kind of person. But then at the same time, she's a little bit she avoids conflict a little bit. So it's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. okay, no, I, I I, get the message. Sure, I'll go with you. And I'll yeah. just say that, you know, this is the next part of my destiny is to go along with you because the universe has shown me signs, even though you're behind the signs kind of thing. Yeah. Well, also, too, we saw that she's afraid of Azula as well. We saw that like fear in the beginning of the episode. Yeah, still, she's definitely so. cautious of Azula. I, I would say even afraid, like she went from bubbly to like, kind of serious not like super serious afraid shaking in her boots but like she definitely her demeanor changed as soon as azula was like oh and i'm staying for your show yeah and she was like oh no so i i think now that we're kind of talking about it a little bit out loud i'm i feel like like solid now yes she's aware and instead of just accusing her or saying i know what you did and causing like you're right 
like avoiding that conflict. She doesn't want to cause any more. She just says, oh, the universe, you know, that crazy universe just wants me to go with you. So we're going. Yeah, I th- I'm thinking so, too. Yeah. Back at camp, Tom Tom begins playing with Sokka's club and Sokka yanks the weapon away, saying, bad Fire Nation, baby. <laughs> Tom Tom begins to cry and Katara chastises her brother, who gives the club back. As Katara coos about how cute the baby is, Young offers the opinion that he will not be so cute when he joins the Fire Nation army when he's older, because then he'll grow up to be a killer. At that moment, a messenger hawk arrives from the city with a message from the governor. They are willing to trade King Boomy for Tom Tom. That's, um, I feel like that's such an understated moment of reality there. Just the whole concept of at one point in time, we are all innocent and we are... To some extent, I can't think of a better way of saying this, but we're slaves to our environment sometimes, the way that we're, we're raised. Because if you are raised around hate and exceptionalism and superiority in relation to other cultures or people, then it's easier for you to hate. And if you're brought up and are taken into a military that says we're better, they're lesser, and they deserve to die, then you it, it's such a interesting nod to reality because sometimes that's how it works you start life with all this promise and then you're fed this like narrative about the world around you that you buy into and then you act upon it yeah i had a couple of thoughts about tom tom and this kind of whole idea of him eventually going to become a fire nation soldier or member of the government or whatever essentially becoming the enemy I'd be curious to see in like Korra to see whatever happened of Tom Tom. He, he feels like such a minor character that it, we probably don't. But I would be very like interested interested to see if he is a product of his environment or if he kind of goes the opposite direction. Because I think Avatar is kind of all about you're really put into this civilization, this society, and the main characters that we really focus on kind of overcome whatever toxic values, for lack of a better term, were instilled. Yeah. Sokka being a prime example of that with his kind of like um, patriarchal view of how things should be from episode one and just that whole idea getting shattered, not even halfway through book one. Right. Uh, So I'd be very curious to see if Tom Tom actually becomes a government official like his father or if he just kind of like is more like, let's say, Ty Lee and goes with the flow because you have to imagine that May, Tylee, and Azula are all friends. So Tom Tom's probably been around Tylee for a little bit at some point. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Interesting thoughts. I did just check, and yeah. Tom Tom does come back okay. uh, in the comics, I believe. Okay. So okay. we we will see him again. Um, I haven't read that particular comic, so it's going to be a, a fun surprise for all of us yeah. when we we cover the comics. And I feel like it's it's worth mentioning once again. Yes, we do intend to cover the comics and the video of games, the Legend of Korra, <laughs> and of everything. everything, the whole Avatar universe. So don't worry, we're going to be here for a while. Worry, yeah. So also, Young has that mentality that Sokka had where all fire nation equals bad right yeah so we're seeing that kind of happen and and you can't really blame them it's been that way for a hundred years yeah exactly yeah yeah which is is such like a a great lesson too to in a world where war has been raging for a hundred years and it's very much us versus them good versus bad the story that we're presented with Team Avatar is almost like cutting through that and seeing the reality, yeah. the gray areas in between. It's not always a good or bad situation. Sometimes you have people just caught up in bad things. And sometimes you have nations that are led by a small group of people and it's not representative of the rest of the country. So yeah. I think that's a, a good lesson to be presented in this story. For sure. Yeah. The next day, Aang, Katara and Sokka take Tom Tom back to the city. Sokka believes they're walking into a trap, but Aang says he has a good feeling about this. Back inside Omashu, Azula enters the city on her palanquin and approaches Mei, who politely bows and tells Azula, please tell me you're here to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) She smirks at Azula to show she's joking, and Azula warmly greets her friend. Tai Lee gives Mei a hug, and Azula tells them she has a mission for the both of them. May immediately agrees, saying anything to get me out of this place. I love how much of a teenager May is. Me too. Oh, God. The <laughs> angst levels are like 
sky high. It's so great. <laughs> so we haven't really even seen this yet in Avatar. So it's very refreshing. It is refreshing, but it yeah. makes sense too. You know, talking about the culture of the world, we have uh, Sokka and Katara, which come from a small village where everyone, it's like all hands on deck. Everyone mm. does their part to keep the village going. We have Aang, who has a lot of importance placed on him in his young life. And then we have the Fire Nation teenagers. Zuko is all caught up in his mission for finding the Avatar and regaining his honor and all of these really big things. But I think May is really the first teenager that we've seen who's just a teenager. She yeah. was born in the Fire Nation. She lived in the city. And now she's in this settlement. And that's her life. So, yep. of course, she's going to be the, I'm bored. Yeah. Life sucks. <laughs> She also doesn't have many actual cares in the world, it seems like. That is what I'm getting at. Exactly. So Yeah. So she's she is just kind of like she's like she would listen to Lincoln Park if Lincoln Park was an avatar. 100 percent. Yeah. OK. <laughs> in Evanescence. In Evanescence. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sometime later, Azula, seated in the governor's chair in the reception room, confronts the governor about the way he has mishandled the current situation. She appoints May to be in charge of the hostage exchange and then announces that the city shall be renamed New Ozai in honor of her father. I love how she comes in and she's like, yeah, you're doing a sucky job. And also I'm renaming the city. Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, yes, man. yes, Princess Azula. Yes. Yes. Just don't burn us to death, please. Yeah. When the time comes to exchange hostages, Team Avatar wait in front of the unfinished statue of Fire Lord Ozai with Tom Tom. In the distance, Azula, Tai Lee, and May approach. They lower Boomy, who is trapped in a metal coffin on the end of a long chain. Before the trade can commence, however, Azula comments on how trading a powerful earthbending king for a two-year-old is not really a fair trade. In what appears to be a pre-planned exchange, May agrees and calls off the deal. Boomy's coffin is raised once more into the air, and Aang raises after it, launching himself into the air with his glider. His head covering slips off in the process to reveal his arrow, and Azula calls this her lucky day. Mm. Without a thought, she races after the Avatar. I love Boomy. Everyone knows I, I know, love Boomy. I was going to say that. Oh, see you all later. <laughs> He's just like such a Master Roshi <laughs> type almost. Like I would love really? to have Boomy and Master Roshi do some sort of like team up event or like, I don't know. Someone do a YouTube video where that teams up. I, I just want to see that in my life. But like, he is just very carefree. He's been completely kidnapped. We learned already that he willingly gave up. So it, it's just like, what are you doing? And and we right? know that his whole thing is thinking outside of the box and coming up with alternative strategies that may seem unconventional. And even like in this episode, they utilize that with the Pentapox. Like we see that yeah. direct. Like they, how awesome is it that they come back to the city where they learned this lesson and use the lesson successfully to save hundreds, if not thousands of lives of like Earth Kingdom people. Yeah. Amashu uh, residents, I guess. Yeah. So like now we're just watching and he's just like, why is he so carefree right now? He is in a steel coffin with only his head exposed. What is going on? Yeah. yeah. There's like there's certain elements of the drunken master. Yeah. Here yeah. Where that was which martial artist again you know this uh jackie no not jackie chan hold on yeah 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 drunken master was a film with jackie chan okay yeah, yeah. and i that's that's what i'm thinking of because in the film yeah it's it's a style that looks completely disorganized yep wild flailing makes no sense but then it comes together and is very intentional and i feel like that is the epitome of boomy well, yeah, that's also the um, just real quick Star Wars rant because I feel like it's been a while since I went on one. That is what a lot, of, why a lot of people think that Jar Jar Binks from Phantom Menace is actually a Sith Lord because oh he uses God, the drunken yes. style and he manages to take down the entire droid army by flailing around seemingly chaotically and by accident, but actually maybe very strategically and master like. I have heard that theory and it, I yeah. don't know how I feel about it, really. <laughs> Aang lands on Boomy's coffin and begins to freeze the chain in order to release him. On the ground, Mei and Tai Lee begin rushing Sokka and Katara. Sokka uses the bison whistle to call for Appa, but as they run away, a hand shoots out of a hole in the ground and strikes his foot. 
He goes tumbling and twists to land on his back in order to protect TomTom on his chest. Tai Lee runs after him, and Katara uses her bending to block a set of daggers from Mei, and then pull Tai Lee off her feet before she can reach her brother. Sokka uses the opportunity to escape down a ladder with TomTom. Up in the air, Bumi tells Aang to stop what he's doing for a minute. But before he can continue, Azula attacks them, and her blast of blue fire breaks the frozen chain, and both Bumi and Aang fall to the ground. Aang uses airbending to soften their landing on one of the delivery chutes, and the metal coffin goes zipping away. Bumi continues to try to get Aang's attention, but the young airbender is distracted and doesn't hear him. Azula uses another cart to chase after them, and Aang must continue to dodge her fire attacks. I love this, by the way. I absolutely love that, like, he's using the steel coffin of Bumi as, like, a surfboard. Yeah. And they're, they're, like, literally, like, surfing and sliding down the Omashu delivery system. And he's just like, just like the good old days, right? And, like, Aang is just having so much fun. And for once, you actually see Bumi kind of serious because Bumi is trying to yell at him and he's trying to ge- tell yeah. him this message and Aang is just not listening or not able to hear him, or maybe a combination of the two. Um, really quickly, too, Ty Lee's chi blocking fighting style is very similar to uh, the style called Gentle Fist, which is a fighting style in it's very similar to Naruto, essentially. It, it was made in Naruto where they they can block a person's internal flow of energy, although in Naruto it's referred to as chakra rather than chi. So it's this like idea yeah. of like you can block someone's abilities, which I know comes into play in Korra, but it's like this idea of like taking away what's special about them, which is pretty interesting. I wonder if that style is the same, the same name that I found or the same style that I found, which is Dim Mock. Mm. Is that the translation? You said Gentle Fist. Gentle Fist. Yeah. But that's from directly from Naruto. Oh, okay. Gentle Fist is from Naruto. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So... This must be the martial art in the real world because I was reading that chi blocking resembles the martial arts technique dim mak, which purports to kill or maim by disrupting the body's flow of internal energy. It also has some connections to Varma Kalai, an ancient martial art of southern India. Hmm. It also has that like um like acupressure points are very similar in that as well. Yeah. So yeah. that's an that's a really cool thing. Another fun fact, I'm glad you said that because I don't know how to say this correctly. It's Chinese. Mm. I think it's mm-hmm. Qigong okay. or sometimes spelled Qigong. It's a form of traditional oriental medicine and uses similar techniques and pressure points to help others qi flow more easily. Mm. And what's most fascinating is it's considered a standard medical technique in Chinese hospitals. Mm. So it's like, I feel like China and Asia in general has always been like this, where they have more al- alternative methods of medicine than like the Western world. The Western world's very much drug based. Yeah. But I've noticed that in getting, for instance, some massages from um, a Chinese based place, they'll use pressure points on like your your skull and your neck and your back and um, pulling the, the fingers and the toes. And I think that's all kind of related to the same technique. Yeah, the same concept or technique. Concept, yeah. Interesting. Back on the scaffolding, Katara and Mei face off. Katara with her water bending and Mei with her blades. Their fight is ended abruptly, however, when Tai Lee uses chi blocking to take her bending away temporarily. Katara stands before them defenseless, but is saved by Sokka in his boomerang when he sweeps in on Appa. May, this is actually kind of interesting, too. In the Cantonese uh, pronunciation of Mei's name, it kind of means sleeve of a robe, which is where she keeps her knives. Uh, but phonetically, it's similar to the Japanese meme, which means dark or invisible. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So that's kind of like really kind of cool. Something that is also interesting. I, I remember I was ta- want to talk about Tom or I want to talk about like a theory I had. It's kind of with meme. You also have it with Tom Tom. So whatever you have like a word repeated or a name repeated in Chinese culture. It's to like show affection or cuteness or something like that. Ah. So Tom, Tom, um, I think Incredibles kind of adapted that with Jack, Jack. And now we have like may, may, right. Even though it's a little bit off. So I had a theory. What if Ty Lee and Tom, Tom, because they don't really have that typical like fire nation coloring. What if Uh they are not biologically, biologically the children of the Fire Nation? 
What if they were adopted children or taken children, potentially? Yeah, that's interesting. Or on that same kind of note, maybe one side of the family is pure fire nation, but then the other is from some sort of other influence. So genetically, the other traits, the non-fire nation presenting traits showed up like the brown hair and the gray eyes. Which would make more sense in the case of Ty Lee, who has six identical sisters but does they don't have that coloring. <laughs> yes. That'd be like, what do you just kidnap six identical sisters from the Earth Kingdom? And it's like, yeah, they're Fire Nation now. But yeah. with like Tom Tom, his coloring looked not quite identical to everyone's to me. So I was just like, what no, if? No, you're right. It doesn't. And what's funny is, I mean, this is going to be a, another little tangent here, yeah. but genetically, dark hair and dark eyes are dominant genes. So more yeah. often than not, they will win out over fairer colored eyes and hair. Right. But it's funny because if we went down this line of what if Ty Lee and Tom Tom's lineage comes from outside the Fire Nation, obviously whatever that is, is a dominant gene because it took over and there's six identical sisters that got the genes and Tom Tom. And Tom Tom. Yeah. It's, it's just very interesting because like Ty, even though Ty Lee and Tom Tom are not related, it's just like, why does Tom Tom have blue eyes? Like he should have that golden eyes that like literally everyone else in the Fire Nation has. And yeah. Yeah. I just was, I couldn't stop like in head cannoning the crap out of that. Yeah. And thinking about why. Yeah. A uh, small note on that. I did read somewhere that in the comics, those gray eyes of Tom Tom and Ty Lee were changed to something a little closer to the Fire Nation. Oh. I want to say it was like a brown or something. I forget exactly which color, but we will see it in the future because we are going to be reading the comics. Um, but yeah, at least for in the show, it's consistently gray from what I, I right. understand it to be. And also ba- baby's eyes, I think, can change color. They I do. Think. Yeah. Yeah. So back to our episode. Mm-hmm. Katara is standing there defenseless with her chi blocked, but is saved by Sokka and his boomerang when he sweeps in on Appa. The large bison knocks the girls back with a gust of his tail, and the group flies off to rescue Aang and Boomy. Small note, but I love how, I think it was May who says, what are you going to do now without your bending? And then Sokka's mm-hmm. boomerang comes through, and he's like, I seem to manage. <laughs> is this the first time we're seeing boomerang? Yes. I think it's yeah, the first time he's used so his too. boomerang. He uses his machete a lot or his sword, but he, yeah, like, his club. Yeah, his club. But like boomerang, this is the first time, at least that I remember seeing it. So me too. I, yeah, it's so good. Along the way, Boomy's metal coffin is knocked into the air onto a different track. And in a tense moment, when Azula bends a blue fire wheel down the track, Boomy is able to bend a rock in its path on the chute using only his chin. When Aang catches this, he asks Boomy if he was able to earthbend all along. Boomy replies, well, they didn't cover my face. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where he like just completely effortlessly bends himself upright at the yep. end of the shoot. And Aang tells him that he doesn't understand. He's like, wait, so what's happening right now? You're bending. <laughs> it's just like, I love just the animation of that, like slide up and then boop and just like lands perfectly <laughs> and it's just like come on man <laughs> like what exactly. are you doing yeah Aang's like a little pissed he's oh, yeah. he's like i don't understand why didn't you free yourself why didn't you defend omashu when it was invaded and this is where he gives ang another lesson and i mm. believe this is just as important as the last lesson he taught him which is things aren't always as they seem mm. and sometimes you need to think outside the box to get through your problems. Mm-hmm. Boomy tells Aang, listen to me, Aang. There are options in fighting called Jing. It's the choice of how you direct your energy. Aang impatiently tells him that, yes, he knows there's positive Jing when you're attacking and negative Jing when you're retreating. Boomy continues with, and neutral Jing. When you do, nothing. Aang <laughs> is shocked to hear that there's a third Jing, and in a funny aside, Boomy clarifies that there's actually 85, but let's just focus on the third one for the time being. <laughs> I want to so know what all 85 Jings are. Yeah, I know, right? So good. So it says, I was just reading the, yeah. the Jing w- wiki on Avatar, or apparently that there's a parallel series concept of Jing in psychology that is fight flight or freeze response reaction 
which is kind oh, of interesting. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So certain personality types are more inclined to act in accordance with a particular Jing or a particular one of these uh, concepts in psychology. Uh, the word Jing also means power or energy in Chinese. So it's like kind of like Fa Jin, essentially. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. And the concept of neutral Jing seemed to be common knowledge prior to the 100-year war, um, which Aang had a hard time tracking down an earthbender around this time who exhibited this because it's pretty much only Boomy because it was so prominent before the war and it became less prominent. Because if you think about it, when you're in a war that's spending a hundred years, you are running away or you're fighting. Yeah. You're not just like stopping to take in the sights because you don't want to. It's probably like a defense mechanism. And like Boomy is over a hundred years old. So he's probably is the last person to know about neutral Jing. Because like, right. why would you even bother passing down information that is irrelevant to life yeah. for two generations now, maybe three? Right. And I imagine there's there's maybe like individual earthbenders around the, the world who are familiar with neutral Jing, but I can absolutely see how it's not common knowledge anymore yeah. because of the environment of the world. Yeah. Neutral Jing is the key to earthbending, Boomi says. It involves listening and waiting for the right moment to strike. Eng begins to understand that this is why Boomi surrendered the city. And it's why I can't leave now, Boomi tells him. Eng is disappointed and says this means he'll have to find a new earthbending teacher. Boomi advises him that Eng will need to find someone who has mastered neutral Jing, someone who waits and listens before striking. With this, Boomi says goodbye and tells his old friend that he will see him again when the time is right. As he leaves, Appa appears with Sokka and Katara on his back to rescue Aang. Some distance away, Azula and her small elite team depart from the city. Tylee says to Mei with a knowing tone, It'll be interesting seeing Zuko again, won't it, Mei? And Mei hides a smile. Ooh! Ooh. <laughs> Ignoring the comment, Azula tells them that, in addition to Zuko and Iroh, they now have a third target to pursue. The Avatar. The Avatar! <laughs> I feel like it's going to be different. When it's yeah. Zuko, it's the Avatar. When it's, when when it, it's, when it's Azula. Azula, it's, it's like the Avatar. The Avatar. Like creepy. Like, creepy and yeah, like more, more calm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That evening, as the governor and his wife sadly hold each other on their balcony, Aang quietly lands behind them with Tom Tom. Setting the child on the ground, he quickly jumps back onto the roof before Tom Tom's parents turn around and joyously reunite with their son. Eng smiles, then turns away and disappears into the night. That was really nice of him. It was so nice. Of course, he yeah. was going to return yeah. Tom Tom. It's what he wanted to do this whole time. I know. <laughs> and that's our episode. Return yeah. to Omashu. It was mm -hmm. so good. Yeah, that was a, that was a really fun one. I'm, I mean, anything with Boomy in it, I'm just going to be four completely. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah same yeah greg who is yeah. your mvp uh i don't think you have to even ask me that question but it's boomy right it's boomy it's, boomy. it's <laughs> always gonna be if boomy shows up in an episode it's gonna be boomy is this the last time we see boomy by the way no it's not okay cool wait do does ang see boomy again face to face no i don't That's think really so really sad yeah but i like to think that off screen they saw each other well like if that makes me really, that kind of puts a damper on this episode then because Boomy's last words to Aang were, I'll see you when the time is right. And then he never sees him again. No, when they die. No. <laughs> no. Thanks. I hate oh, it. Oh, man. Oh, that makes me sad. Okay, but it, it is it is Boomy because he's amazing. And whenever we see him, he has this amazing moral to teach Aang and the group. And it really does like, we're still seeing evidence of thinking outside the box. Things aren't always as they appear to be in every single episode that we've covered so far. So I'm yeah. very much looking forward to seeing in future episodes how this like neutral Jing approach is going to make Aang kind of develop even more as not just an avatar, but as a person. I 100% agree. Boomy yeah. is also my MVP yeah. because with a lesson like that, he has to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just love that we got back-to-back -back amazing characters. We got Chong last episode, and now we get more Boomy. Like, I, <laughs> give me more of these kinds of characters, please, Avatar. I Thank know. you. Gosh, yes. Yeah. What about your moral of the story? 
Um, I think my moral of the story is faking sick can often lead to fantastic results. Faking sick can oftentimes mm-hmm. lead to fantastic results. Who are you thinking of when you say this? Pentapox specifically. Pentapox. Okay. Yeah. Pen- so Pentapox, they use Pentapox where they were like, we have to get out of the city, but we don't know how. And it's like, cool, let's just fake sick and we'll f- act like we're so sick that no one will want to touch us and we can just move right on through. Faking sick can sometimes lead to better well-being. Oh, even better. <laughs> yes, I like that. I like that. That's good. I am going to say my moral of the story is sometimes you need to wait and listen before mm, acting. Because mm. I got to call attention to the new boomy lesson. Yes, that, that is a good one. Uh, oh, or a third one, if you really wanted to, is sometimes the easiest way out is through. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There we go. That, that, those awesome. are the things that I've learned in this episode. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, that is all the time we have for this week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you again for continuing to go on this journey with us. We are making our way through book two, and I am so excited about what's to come. So pumped. Thank you for all the love, as always. Remember, the best way to support the show is to tell your friends and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcast, along with a written review. Mm-hmm. You can also write to us at avatarthepodcast at gmail.com, and you can tweet at us at podcastavatar. Yeah. And remember, if you're caught up on all the episodes and all the ang mail and all the wonderful content that we've put out there and you want to hang out with me a little bit more, you can do so over at twitch.tv slash booster Greg on Monday and Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can always just go ahead and give that channel a follow ahead of that. And that way you get a little notification when I go live and then you can be the first butt in the seat. (laughs) Imagine that. Greg has a great intro to his stream, so it's worth it. Yeah, it's a good time. We have fun. (laughs) And you can find me, Acorn, on Twitter at AcornBandit and online at Joysons.com, where I create enamel pins. Yeah. Coming up next time. The best way to earn coin while on the run. And swamp bending. Yay. All this and more next time on Avatar, Avatar the, the Podcast. podcast. Avatar, the podcast, is a part of the Geek Generation Network. Check out all of our podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com.